Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast that explores issues in agricultural and medicinal biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are answered using a science-based approach with the goal of moving innovations to applications with communication. Now here's your special guest host. Hello, and welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast with Kevin Folta, the weekly podcast where we discuss biotechnology, uh, its progress, and its ability to help people and the planet. I'm your guest host, Chris Barbie, fourth-year PhD candidate in the Folta Laboratory. Besides the exceptional privilege of enjoying me as your host, on the podcast with me is Sir Rich Roberts, the Nobel Prize-winning scientist for the discovery of introns, which are a kind of peculiar non-coding part of the genes of higher organisms. Uh, besides his uh, acceptable scientific credentials, Sir Rich Roberts uh, has been a prominent voice and organizer for the body of Nobel laureates against various human rights injustices internationally, such as uh, an open letter to Muammar Gaddafi, uh, campaigning for the release of a Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, and current political prisoner, um, and most recently, campaigning for the acceptance of genetic engineering in our agricultural systems, particularly for the developing world uh, that needs it the most. Rich Roberts, welcome to the Talking Biotech podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Rich, if someone uh, you dislike calls you Mr. Roberts, do you hit him back with Dr. Roberts or Sir Roberts or both? No, I, I actually, if you want to address me formally, it should be Sir Richard. <laughs> Okay, but I actually just prefer to be called Rich. <laughs> so, you did your Nobel Prize research at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in the in the lab of kind of a a really famous guy, uh, James Watson, himself a Nobel laureate for co-discovering the structure of DNA. How did you come to arrive at that lab? Um, well, I was a postdoc at Harvard, um, was looking for a job, and I was told. By Mark Potashny, there was a job at Cold Spring Harbor, and that um, Jim Watson would come and talk to me about it. And a couple of weeks went by, and Mark said to me, oh, Jim doesn't know who you are, so perhaps you can introduce yourself. So I went over to his office, introduced myself, and five minutes later walked out with a job offer down at Cold Spring Harbor. 
and ended up going down there because it was a, a rather attractive job offer. It came with funding. Um, the people at Cold Spring Harbor had just gotten a big grant to study cancer, and there was a, a slot that I moved into, and so I got very good funding um, for a little over four years as a result of that. You won your, your Nobel Prize for co-discovering introns. Yeah, and my work involves a lot of genomic sequence analysis, and I, I see literal empirical proof of introns every day on my screen. Um, and it's not it's not banal exactly, but it's uh, something I take for granted. I think just like probably most scientists. So try to set the stage for us. Uh, what did we think that we knew about how genes worked back then, uh, and what did your well, work change? Yeah, th this was um, we got started on this area in the early 1970s, and at that time, one had a pretty good idea of what a gene looked like in a bacterium. Um, it was just a continuous piece of DNA, and there was a defined starting point and a defined ending point, and there was a sequence ahead of the um, protein coding sequence that was called a promoter, and I had a postdoc came to work in my lab, and we decided to asked the question if promoters in higher organisms were the same as those in bacteria. And we started working with adenovirus, which is a eukaryotic virus. It's a very nice experimental object. And so we started to, to do some experiments there. And I came up with what I thought was going to be a very good way of um, doing the experiments, which involved looking for sequences um, that carried a 5' prime triphosphate um, on messenger RNA because this is how messenger RNAs start. And we got started doing this and didn't get such great results. And then something very interesting happened. It was discovered that in eukaryotes, all of the messages had a cap sequence on them, and they were fairly heavily modified. And it occurred to me that we could use this modification to selectively purify um, oligonucleotides that were right at the five prime end of the message. And so I devised a way to do this, and the postdoc who was working with me, Richard Gelinas, who um, was a, an exceptionally good worker, um, started to do some experiments along the lines that I'd suggested and got results which didn't make sense. And of course, you know, in typical fashion, I thought he had screwed up the experiment. And so I made him go back and repeat it, which he did a couple of times and kept getting the same results. And so I said, well, you know, maybe you should let me do it and I'll show you how to do it properly. And so I did the experiment and got the same result. And at that point, we knew there was something fundamentally different between what was going on with messenger RNAs in bacteria and in higher organisms. And as a result of then trying to follow through on that, um, over the course of probably six to eight months, um, we kept getting results which said, yes, things are definitely different, but without actually telling us what the difference was. And we'd gotten into a habit every Saturday morning. Um, we would sit and go over the last week's results and then try to figure out um, why we hadn't managed to prove what was going on. And Richard was sitting this one Saturday morning and he got up, went to the board, and started to draw out a very complicated scheme for the next week's experiments, and all of a sudden it occurred to me what we should do. And I said, sit down, Richard, this is what we should do, 
and I described an R-loop experiment, and it really looked as though it was going to tell us whether um, the thing, the, the messenger RNA, really was split into pieces in the way that we thought. Um, the only problem with that is that neither Richard nor I were electron microscopists, and this was an electron microscopy experiment. Uh, but fortunately, we had two really good experimental electron microscopists who worked just down the hall, Tom Broker and Louise Chow, and so we went down, and they were in their office, and we talked to them and said, we, we've got this idea for an experiment. Um, could you do it? And so they said, well, you know, no one's quite done it that way before, but we think it could be done. And so Richard then went on and made the reagents over the weekend that we needed for the experiment. And by Tuesday, we had everything we needed. Um, we gave the um, messenger RNA prep to um, Louise Chow, and she then did the electron microscopy, and within a couple of hours, um, she had seen this picture that I had drawn on the blackboard, um, which proved unequivocally that the, there were introns that were present in, in messenger RNA. And at that point, everybody got very excited. Um, Tom and Louise then went on and spent a lot of time doing some very detailed experimental work um, with the electron micro microscope. Um, we did a lot of biochemical work to follow through on it, and the result was the discovery of introns. I, I have a theory on very high-level, like, prize-winning kind of science, because I think that, that maybe the quality of intelligence might be a little overvalued, and I think that guts might be undervalued. Because uh -huh. I, I think, you know, uh, most scientists would, would sooner disbelieve their own data forever rather than think that they're just that far ahead. And m maybe as important as your work with introns is your work with restriction enzymes. This includes mm -hmm. the creation of uh, rebase or restriction enzyme database, providing enzymes to research labs for popular consumption via New England Biolabs. Tell us how you got started with, with excuse me with restriction enzymes, what they are, and um, and what your role is with NEB. Well, so again, this story started back at Harvard when um, what Jim Watson wanted when he offered me the job. Um, he wanted someone who would sequence SV40 DNA. And um, at the time, I was the first person, actually, in the Boston area to be using Sanger-style RNA sequencing. I'd gone over to his lab in 1969 to learn how to do it, and um, we'd sequence some tRNAs. And, you know, he wanted someone to then go and essentially use the same methods to sequence SV40 DNA. But during my last year at Harvard in 1972, I went to a seminar over at Harvard Medical School by Dan Nathans, who described um, some experiments he'd done with SV40 DNA, in which he'd taken the enzyme at the time, it was called endonuclease R, that had been discovered by Ham Smith. It was the very first type 2 restriction enzyme. And he showed that you could take this enzyme and cut SV40 DNA into very discrete pieces. Now, at the time, there were no methods available to sequence DNA, and so and the reason was because there'd been no small pieces of DNA to practice methodology on. And it occurred to me that this restriction enzyme cutting up SV40 would actually give you some small pieces of DNA um, that one could both practice and develop methods for sequencing DNA. And so when I went down to Cold Spring Harbor, um, I, decide, I discovered, first of all, that there were two other groups already sequencing SV40 DNA, and so it seemed a waste for me to do it as well. 
but then we started to look for restriction enzymes, and pretty soon everywhere we looked, we found them, and they were all different, and so we pretty soon I had a collection of about 30 different restriction enzymes, which we could use to cut DNA up, and we started to do some experiments to, to try to work out some um, DNA sequencing methods, but it turned out that the um, restriction enzymes themselves were far more interesting than trying to develop um, sequence methodology. And during that time, Fred Sanger was developing methods. And so since he'd been successful in both protein and RNA, it seemed likely he would do the same for DNA. And so I focused my effort on um, the restriction enzymes and isolating them. And that's what we did. Um, everybody wanted them. It was obvious you could make money selling these things. And so I went to Jim Watson and I said, why don't we start a company at Cold Spring Harbor to sell these restriction enzymes, then use the profits to support the research at Cold Spring Harbor? To which Jim um, had a very negative reaction and said, well, you know, that was basically not something he was interested in. He didn't think you could make money doing that. And he had no interest in it. Plus, it was rather dirty to be associated with industry anyway. And so in the meantime, I kept giving all these enzymes away. I mean, we, we were constantly shipping things out. We had people come into the lab to um, sample them. And so I asked around, and I heard about a fellow up in Boston called Don Combe, who'd started a company called New England Biolabs. And they were thinking of selling restriction enzymes, but via miles, a distributor. And so I called Miles. They told me about Don. They said, call him. Got his telephone number, went up, visited him, and we talked. Um, he offered me a partnership in the company, which I didn't want because uh, I was still working at Cold Spring Harbor, but I said, I'll be your chief consultant. And so that was how I joined New England Biolabs. I was actually their fourth employee at the time. Um, there was Don, his wife, and one technician who were actually making um, one or two of the restriction enzymes. I told him which enzymes I, I thought he should be making and sent him the strains and the protocols we were using. Uh, but I said I, I would do the same for anybody who wanted them. This was not going to be exclusive because I, I don't believe in exclusivity if it can be avoided. And so he went on and he, in fact, Biolabs was the very first company ever to be making and selling restriction enzymes, and they sold $200,000 worth in the first year, um, which was very, very good. I mean, you know, can you imagine this was just all done in a basement in Beverly underneath the hairdressers with a makeshift lab? You know, everybody wanted them, and so they did well, and there was no other source. And I was very clear that I thought the key to this was to make sure we always sold good quality enzymes, that if they worked, then people would buy them. And if they were good quality and you knew they were going to work, you, you would um, go to this company over and over again in order to get them. Uh, and that's what's happened. And so I stayed at Cold Spring Harbor until 1992 um, doing sort of regular research. I was chief consultant for NEB the whole time. And then in 92, um, I was looking for something else to do. I'd done everything I thought I could do at Cold Spring Harbor. And I, at one time, had thought about starting up a company. And then I mentioned this to Biolabs. And they said, well, you know, if you're going to do it, this was a sequencing company I was thinking of setting up. They said, well, if you're going to go to a company, you should come to us. And so basically made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. And I moved up here um, as director of eukaryotic research and eventually moved into the position of chief scientific officer. Um, but what I actually do um, up here is research. 
Um, almost all of the work that I do is looked at DNA methylation in bacteria, and that's all thanks to Pacific Biosciences' um, new method of sequencing that they came out with a few years ago. And that has been extraordinarily interesting to a point where I published more papers last year than at any other time in my scientific career. Yeah, and it's it's hard to to overstate the importance of of NEB, right? I mean, the 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 NEB catalogs are kind of legendary, especially in in early yeah. molecular biology. I think like like together mm-hmm. with right. probably molecular cloning by Sandbrook, probably like the the old and new testaments of molecular biology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and right. It's, well, it's, and that was that you know the idea of putting all of this extra information in the catalog was also mainly my idea. Because I thought that if you did that, then it meant people wouldn't be trying the catalog away. They would have it on the bench all the time because they would be consulting it for all the appendiceal information at the back and in the process would know, you know, there were things they could buy from the company. Yeah. Um, we were we were the first company to do that. There was no and then of course everybody followed as soon as they realized this was a good um, advertising point and making sure that people kept the catalog close by. Yeah, and I can't really even think of an area of biological research that didn't become transformed by restriction enzymes. They were transformative. At this point, we'll take a brief break. When we return, we'll talk more about the role of the Nobel laureates in guiding public policy. They've become a more vocal force uh, in stepping up for science. We'll be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin Folta. And this is Paul Vincelli. And we're here talking about the next generation of potential opportunities with the Talking Biotech podcast. And we have a very special invitation for you. (laughs) Okay, so here's the deal. What we're looking for is to expand the opportunities of using this vehicle to expose more people to the opportunities within science communication. How do you build your brand by potentially hosting a Talking Biotech episode. Hosting a Talking Biotech episode accomplishes many things for me. One is I learn more about a topic that I'm interested in. And uh, two is I develop some skills on science communication and do it in a way that's really quite friendly and interactive. So how you do it is really simple. All you need to do is identify someone you would like to talk to, learn something about what they do, Make the interview time to talk to them and have the conversation. It's really simple. You do that, send us the audio files, and I'll take care of the rest. And uh, I'll offer myself to mentor somebody who wants to, uh, you know, stick their toe in the water and try it out. And in the days of standing up for science, there's no better way for you to stand up for the science you enjoy and that you would like to communicate to others than to share those important stories. And use this platform to talk about what you're interested in. So think about it. It's a uh, wonderful opportunity, and we're excited to extend it to you. And now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back with the Talking Biotech Podcast, speaking with Dr. Rich Roberts, 1993 Nobel Prize winner and co-discoverer of introns. Rich, you've been instrumental in organizing other Nobel laureates to address various social and humanitarian injustices around the world. Tell us a bit about the work you've done in the past. I, I got into this um, almost um, by chance, in a way, that there was a... You probably remember when PLOS Biology and the Public Library of Science first got started, and there was this big open access movement, and I, I was incredibly in favor of open access. And it occurred to me that maybe what I could do would be to organize a few Nobel laureates to come out and make a statement about open access publication and 
say how good it was, and perhaps people would listen to us. And so I got a bunch of, of laureates all to sign on, um, including Harold Varmus, who was one of the leaders of um, PLOS. And so we sent a letter into nature and to science explaining um, how good open access would be, encouraging people to um, pursue open access. And that turned out to have some impact, not as much as we hoped. And in part, I think the problem was that neither nature nor science were prepared to make their scientific content open access. And I think if they'd done that, um, we would not be in the current quagmire that we're at, where you've got journals like Nature and Science that don't make their scientific content open access immediately. You have to wait for it. And um, other publishers, you know, they, they do their maximum to um, avoid open access when they can. But, but nevertheless, it is gaining momentum, and some funding agencies, like The Welcome, um, are insisting on open access. All of the people they fund welcome the same, and they must fund, they must publish in open access journals and make their stuff available. And now we have the Cold Spring Harbor Archive, um, which is sort of following the, the physicists and their ex-archive. And so there is a, an increasing movement. But that was the first time that I got involved in anything that I would say resembles social consciousness. And I, I thought that it was actually um, a very good thing to do because the Nobel laureates typically, uh, it, it's been like herding cats. They, they don't do very much together. And we meet one another, we get to know one another, um, just in, not, not just in our own categories, in other categories too. And the peace laureates had done quite a good job. They'd been organizing themselves. And so I thought we could do the same for the science laureates. And so that, that was the first. Now, sometime after that, um, I heard about a case of some Bulgarian nurses in Libya who'd been accused of spreading HIV at the children's hospital in Benghazi. And I'd been reading little bits and pieces about it, and it was just such an outrageous claim um, that had been made uh, by Gaddafi and his government. And it never occurred to me that this was, was not going to just get thrown out and the Bulgarian nurses were released. They'd actually been held accountable for this, they'd been tortured, forced to confess, but things went on and on and on, and eventually they were facing death sentences. And so um, I talked to a man called Declan Butler, who's a reporter at Nature, and um, said, you know, maybe there's something we could do, maybe something I could do here, maybe I could mobilize the Nobel laureates and we could try and get things going. And so... I contacted um, the laureates, got more than a 100 of them to sign a letter, um, which was delivered to um, Gaddafi. Um, it was actually, I took it personally down to the um, UN legation from Libya because there were no formal contacts at the time. I also contacted the British Foreign Office to let them know what I was doing because I'm a, I'm a British citizen. And it occurred to me that they might not be um, so happy with what I was doing since they didn't have very good, particularly good relations with Libya. They had some, um, but they they were obviously a better conduit, conduit into Libya. And they were very helpful. I've got to say that the British Foreign Office really turned out to be fantastic. Not only did they help me personally um, when I went on to a visit to Libya later on, 
but they were also quite active in working on this case with other members of the European Union, with the diplomats, also with Egypt. Um, The Egyptian diplomats had some say in Libya. And so that all um, was a different form of pressure. So anyway, so when the letter went, um, about, oh, two weeks afterwards, I got a phone call one day from someone who said, well, um, I'm the personal assistant of um, Gaddafi's son, Saif al-Islam, and he said, we would like you to come to Libya and talk to us about this. And so I thought, fantastic. And so that's what I did. I got on a plane, went to Libya, um, was put up by the British ambassador to Libya, and stayed in the embassy, and I, I was there for a couple of days. And then um, Saif al-Islam, I got a call, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night or something, who said, um, would you come over to this hotel? We can meet. I went, met with him, and took the letter, and told him about the laureate's concerns, and he said, um, first thing he said pretty much was, well, we know you're right, and we're going to find a way to let the nurses out. And so shortly after that, the nurses were set free, and they went back to Bulgaria. There was one student from Palestine. I I think he went back to Bulgaria, too. I'm not quite sure what happened to him. But anyway, they were all released from prison, uh, and they were all rather grateful that that we'd gotten involved in this. And so that was really the first big success that we had as a result of laureates mobilizing to try and do something for social good. That's really interesting. So, so do you think that y- you were able to to actually change their minds about their claims with these nurses, or do you feel like uh, you you just put them into a position where where what they were doing was was not politically tenable anymore? Yeah, I, I think they knew from the start that what they were saying was nonsense. It was just a convenient political move. I think what our movement did, one, was to draw attention in a very public way. The letter was published in Nature, and um, so it, it was all done in a very public way. And I think the biggest impact, to be honest, was that there were various European governments who had made some half-hearted efforts to help previously, uh, but they never followed through on anything. And I think when all of this became public and that the Nobel laureates were behind it, and they decided that they were going to do a lot more than they had in the past. And, right. and I know this for a fact from talking to um, the lawyer who was representing the, the nurses at the time. So there was a lot of behind-the-scenes diplomacy that was catalyzed as a result of the laureate's action in this case. What motivates you to, to organize these campaigns? Do, do you feel that there there's a... A peculiar sense of responsibility as a Nobel laureate to be involved in these sorts of issues? Well, to be honest, you know, to, to be a Nobel laureate is an incredible honor. And, it, you know, it, it's the highest point in, in a scientist's career, really, to, to be told that, that you've won the Nobel Prize. And I've always felt that because I have it, I have a bully pulpit. People listen to me. Um, and, and they think that I talk with some authority as a result of that. And so that has a, a dual impact. On the one hand, you have to be rather careful about what you say. Uh, but on the other hand, it is nice when people listen and when people have some respect for the things you say. And it occurred to me that very few laureates have actually used that bully pulpit to do good. And so I thought this was a, a good opportunity to actually give back to society 
um, something that had come as a result of this tremendous honor that I'd received from the Swedes. And so I, I do feel, I, I do feel some responsibility. I, I think um, we have a bully pulpit, and if you have it, you should use it. You've been a, a major advocate for genetic engineering in agriculture, uh, particularly in the developing world. You have a, a seminar um, that people can watch online, and the title is A Crime Against Humanity, and it's referring to the, the organized opposition against genetically engineered crops. Tell us how you see this as a moral issue and, and not just a scientific issue. Well, I think the moral issue, from my perspective, that there are two aspects to it. One is that the anti-GMO people, and especially Greenpeace, who really led a lot of the opposition here, they used science in a way that was simply not true. Um, they misled people about it, and they continue to do so. And I always find, I, I have moral repugnance towards people who try to use science and tell science in a way that simply isn't true and is not factual. Um, it's, I, I don't have much respect for that. Now, I could accept, perhaps, that when Greenpeace got started, um, there, there were some possibilities that um, GM foods might turn out to have some problems. But it soon became obvious that there really were no problems connected with it. And by now, it's completely obvious that there are no basic problems, safety problems, connected um, with the method. GM is a method. It, it's not a final product. And it's the products that one needs to worry about. And GM, just the method, just turns out to be the best way of doing plant breeding now. Um, the old plant breeding was very imprecise, and the new plant breeding um, with GM methods, and especially now with CRISPR methods, is just so much better and so much more precise. And to try to stop people from doing that when there is tremendous need for food and good quality food in the world um, just seems to me inappropriate. And one example would be golden rice, um, which is a way of introducing beta-carotene, the precursor of vitamin A, into the grain of rice um, so that if it's fed to um, children, it provides the possibility of them producing sufficient vitamin A to avoid childhood blindness and various other um, problems that they face during development if they don't have sufficient quantities of vitamin A. And as a result of vitamin A deficiency, somewhere between 1 and 2 million children die every year um, because of this. And golden rice is just one example of a crop that if it were made widely available, um, for many of these children for whom rice is a staple of their diet, and then it would also give them the vitamin A that they need. And this whole idea of making better nutritional plants um, that will, will help to feed the hungry and the malnourished um, seems to me such a good thing to do that to find here is an organization like Greenpeace who not only is saying that it's dangerous, um, but in, in Europe and in the developed, they're going to the developing world now and telling them that they shouldn't be doing it, and this is too dangerous for them to eat. This despite the fact that we now have more than 20 years of very good um, science and very good reports that there is no inherent danger um, behind GM foods. And so I, I just think basically Greenpeace are killing people 
by saying the, these lies and these fabrications that somehow genetically modified foods are inherently dangerous. It just isn't true. The science doesn't support it, and it is actively killing people in the developing world by denying them access to this technology. There are many countries now that will not take anything that is genetically modified, Norway included. And I think what one has to recognize is that the origins of this movement stemmed not so much from GM food, but it stemmed from big agribusiness and the fact that the Europeans didn't want big agribusiness to be taking over their food supply. But in fact, it already had, to all intents and purposes. And the GM, GMO issue just became one way in which the activists could focus their attention on big agribusiness. Mm, right. So your, your Nobel laureate campaign in support of genetic engineering and agriculture had over 120 laureates in support. And, and not just, uh, I noticed scientists from STEM fields, but also Nobel Peace Prize winners and winners in literature. Yeah, we actually literature. have people from all disciplines, yeah. Yeah, so how, how did that um, come to be organized? Like, what's the process? Do you just send an email and well, say, hey, so, <laughs> um, a little more complicated than that. But basically, um, I started off by talking to a few of the medicine laureates um, at a meeting that I was at in Linda, where, where I gave a talk about GMOs at the time, and said I was thinking of organizing a campaign, and they immediately said, yes, do it, we'll sign on. And so then I started to um, solicit others, and uh, I've because of my previous work um, getting Nobel laureates to um, sign on to things, I, I have a very good mailing list and a good rapport with quite a few of them. There are the ma many of them that I've, I've known as a result of campaigns I've organized and they've joined with. And so I wrote to them and found out who would join me, who wouldn't, um, there were plenty of them who said, well, you know, we, some of the literature laureates, for instance, said we don't really know enough about this issue um, to be able to take a, a, a position. And so we, we're basically in favor of you and we believe you because you're good scientists. But um, for us to accuse Greenpeace of a crime against humanity is perhaps going a little too far. Right. So that was um, the way. But I don't think there was anybody who said no i don't recall anybody saying no you're wrong and um gm foods are dangerous and the closest i got to that was one laureate who said he couldn't sign the letter because his wife was vehemently opposed to gmos and um, she would kill him if he signed <laughs> and so in the interest of marital harmony he thought it best not to sign right life is compromised right <laughs> So how, yeah. how in your view, have, you know, rank-and-file plant scientists fit into all of this? Because it's really become a real cultural issue. And what what is the role that we are supposed to play um, versus the role that, that we are playing? Yeah, and I think this is, for me, one of the saddest points is that the people who really know about this issue are the plant scientists. And so they've effectively been shut down for the most part um, by all of this anti-GMO stuff. And so this was something that I was hoping our campaign um, would prompt more of the science, plant scientists to come out and speak up about it, uh, because I felt the laureates would be able to help them to overcome resistance, to overcome problems that the activists might bring about. Um, for the most part, though, that hasn't happened, and I'm not sure I understand quite why. Right. Yeah, I know when I joined Kevin Folter's lab, um, 
this was the time when he was, you know, literally taking his nameplate off the door to our lab in response to the, right. the threats he's received. Uh, r- really, yeah. r- literally, for, for doing nothing bolder than just simply schooling people on the existing scientific consensus. We're, we're not a lab that generates data about GMO safety at all. Uh, and it's like, mm-hmm. it's a really sorry state that that's all it takes for a scientist to make oneself controversial is just to be, a, you know, a conduit for the consensus. Right. Yeah, and I, I'd be lying if I said that, you know, the, the backlash, you know, hasn't had an effect on me. You know, I'm not interested at all in making myself a target. And there's, there's nothing easier than just staying quiet, right? But I see, I see firsthand all the time what, what Kevin's doing and what you and the Nobel laureates are doing in this space. And it, and it really helps empower rank and file, uh, scientists like me to talk about, uh, what we know, even when it's unpopular. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm glad. And that was the idea, really. Um, we actually made sure that all of the laureates had no direct funding from Monsanto or anything like that. Um, in order to be able to avoid the criticisms that have been laid uh, by the anti-GMO people on all the plant scientists who frequently have received money from big agribusiness. And in part, that has been because they can't get it from the U.S. government or from other governments um, because they've just not put very much money into this area, uh, and they probably should have done. I want to I want to finish up um, by looking towards the future. What happens if we fail to make progress on crop genetics, or what I think is more likely, we fail to to translate that progress? Okay. Well, I, I don't think that that is going to happen. But if it does, then a very large number of people in this world are going to go hungry. If you look at there was an article in the um, New York Times recently. Um, showing just how many people are malnourished, impoverished around the world uh, because they don't have access to suitable food supplies, good nutritional food, and the world population is growing at an alarming rate, and we're not going to be able to keep up. We in the West will keep up because we've spent a huge amount of money on plant breeding and making sure we can grow as much food as we need, um, the same has not been true in the developing countries. No one has gone down there and said, oh, we will teach you how to grow very large amounts, um, with the exception of people like Norman Borlaug, who introduced the um, better varieties of rice and so on. But for the most part, big business has never got involved in this because they didn't think they'd make money at it. And I think the message that I'm trying to get over is that while in the West, if people want to not eat GMOs, that, that's really a decision, they, it's a personal decision they should make, but they shouldn't do it because they think they're dangerous, they should do it because they just don't want to, and they shouldn't then go off and pretend that these are dangerous and that's why they're not eating them. And so I think we need to make sure um, that we get the message across to as many people as possible that these things are not inherently dangerous, and that the anti-GMO people are being very disingenuous in the way in which they attack them. Sir Rich Roberts, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's been a, a great pleasure. Nice to talk to you. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Kevin. So, <laughs> yeah, me um, too. I think, I think he's done a great job and will continue to do so. Likewise. Very, very much enjoyed this conversation. Thanks. Good. And until next time, uh, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please write a review on iTunes and please write your suggestions for our future guests. Most of all, keep standing up for science. I'm Chris Barbie. Thanks again.
Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.